Hi everybody, this is Michael Stornago from Oslo International Church with a new Sunday reflection here in our different OIC channels. We're currently doing a series uh, which we have called Letters from Lockdown. And it's drawing from Paul's letter to the Philippians, as well as from our own current experience of lockdown due to the COVID pandemic, which we are still dealing with here in Norway and all around the world. Now, one of the outcomes of, of the social restrictions under lockdown is that rather that, than meeting here at Hastekirke for our Sunday service, we find ourselves picking up a device, uh, your computer, tablet, or phone, and opening some app to get access to this material that we are putting out every Sunday. So we have our podcast out, and we have the video versions on YouTube and on Instagram. Now, I'm not an avid YouTube user, but I do check Instagram more often. And, you know, pictures of friends, families, and their cats, that kind of stuff. But recently, I actually bothered checking out the Reels uh, tab and, in, in Instagram. And honestly, it gave me a bit of a shock. I guess we're, we, all, we all are aware of the sort of social media life persona phenomena. Uh, people sort out what they put out on social media and they try to present themselves in a specific way. So there's a, a pretense that we are getting a glimpse into each other's lives, but we, what we are actually seeing is a curated image. Now, that's not new, and we all know it if we bother thinking about it. And we all do it to some extent. But I feel like the stuff coming out on Reels is just next level. It's just so many layers of filters and makeup and rhetoric. The crazy thing is we all know that, but we're still somehow attracted by it. We, we grab onto these curated images and stories and we fancy ourselves getting privileged glimpses of other people's privileged lives. And willingly or naively, we succumb to, to the allure that our own lives are just a click and a brave decision away from fitting into that same curated frame. I feel this effect is especially strong as we find ourselves in lockdown. Soon our images and dreams of lockdown life are populated and haunted by all the ways in which we could build better bodies and bake better bread and cook better food while stuck in our homes. And soon our images and dreams of post-lockdown freedom are populated and haunted by the scantily clad people in white beaches with emerald waters. All these things we feel are right there within our reach. We can get them, we should get them, they should be ours. And soon our bucket lists are overflowing with an enormous amount of future frustrations. And who's to blame? Who do we blame for this? Maybe we should blame those rapid, 
those ripped hipsters, right? Kite surfing while they eat avocado on home-baked sourdough loaves. <laughs> Maybe it's their fault. Then I put down my phone and I open my Bible on Paul's letter to the Philippians, more specifically on chapter 3, which I had for today's reflection. And suddenly I'm thinking, oh my, is, is this Paul's Instagram feed? Is Paul a first century hipster? What's going on here? I mean, let me read this stuff for you. And this is from chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So, there's some bashing of other people, there's some bragging, and there's an inspirational slash motivational speech. Sounds like social media material to me, right? And we could, of course, argue that Paul only brags about the things he does in verses 5 to 6, his sort of religious ethnical credentials, so to speak, that he only brags about them in order to say that he left that behind for what he will then describe from verse 7, knowing Christ. But even that could be understood as something like, I used to do this, which I was really good at, but then I found out this new thing, which is even better, and I am even better at, right? Hashtag life hacks. Hashtag follow me for more spiritual enhancement. And the thing is, that is not in fact an unusual reading of this text, often with the best of intentions, and it can easily become a trap that only adds future frustration to our spiritual bucket list. 
The problem with this kind of interpretation is very similar to the problem with social media. It lacks context. It lacks context. But thankfully, this is not an isolated social media post. If you want to read it that way, that's on us. But there's quite a lot of damage done by reading Bible versus isolated like posts. So let's, let's not do that. Uh, of course, we, we can't also pretend to be able to contemplate the full context of everything pertaining this passage. It is a very dense passage. So what I want to do is to draw some context lines from the axis of one particular word. One particular word. Safeguard. Safeguard. The word safeguard caught my attention in this text because it sits right at the hinge of what seems like a complete turn of direction in the letter. Paul had been writing to the followers of Christ in Philippi, which was a markedly Gentile, that is non-Jewish, a markedly Gentile city. And he's been encouraging them to be faithful to Jesus and live lives worthy of the gospel, even in a context of persecution and strife, and to encounter joy even in that reality. Now, the kind of persecution that the Philippians were most likely being subjected to was from the part of Gentile Roman identity-centered establishment. And, and also the role that emperor worship played in that identity. As a minority group that claimed allegiance to a different Lord than Caesar and worshipped a different Lord than Caesar and refused to take part in emperor worship, the Christians represented a nuisance and they represented a threat to Philippi's identity as a Roman-centered colony. And Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. It's only natural to wonder, a safeguard from what? And we, we would be inclined to think about the troubles the Philippians had been facing. But then Paul suddenly seems to change course completely, and he starts talking about a completely different threat. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And with that, Paul launches an attack on what has often been called the Judaizers. Now, these were Christian Jews who argued that in order to become a follower of Christ, one must become also a full-fledged Jew, circumcision included. And Paul will have none of it. And he argues that though he was himself a Jew of high pedigree, with a remarkable record in regards to following Torah, the Jewish religious law, he accounted all of that as garbage, rubbish, refuse, in the face of the worth of knowing Christ. Now, it's important to note here that Paul's issue is not with the Jews. And Paul's issue is not with Jews following the Torah. His issue isn't even with Gentiles following the Torah per se. His issue is with certain Jews imposing the following of Torah as a prerequisite 
and a necessity for being a follower of Christ. The strong expressions with which Paul initiates his critique of them, dog, evildoers, mutilators, are actually a very good hint at what Paul is aiming at. We don't have the time here to consider each individually or to go deeply into this, but Paul didn't come up with these expressions himself. At the time of Paul, they have both historical, even scriptural, and fairly known usages. And what they all have in common is that they were derogatory expressions used to mark exclusivity and exclusion with nationalistic overtones. Now, the first two, dogs and evildoers, relate to exclusivity and exclusion discourses on the part of Jews. Dogs will eat anything and cannot distinguish between what is pure and what is impure. And so they became a, a word for Gentiles. Evildoers are those who do not follow the law and the will of the Lord. So these expressions, they mark the exclusivity of the chosen ones who follow Torah and know how to recognize what is pure from what is impure at the exclusion of the others, the Gentiles, those who, who go into what is impure and do not know how to follow. Now the last expression, mutilators, is more likely to be a play with a derogatory term used by Gentiles towards Jews and especially towards their practice of circumcision. Now, while this one is used in the opposite direction, they all carry the same characteristic of being an expression of othering, of marking the other, and separating oneself from the other. Now, once we realize this, then Paul's ironic use of these expressions becomes clear. He is telling the people who demand an excluding demarcation that by their actions they are in fact putting themselves on the outside of God's redemptive work. By insisting on keeping a door shut, they are locking themselves out. But we need to ask though, why is Paul bringing all of this up? Because there is little evidence that the activity of these so-called Judaizers was a big issue in the city of Philippi. And this attack on them marks a sharp change of subject in this letter. So why does Paul feel the need to include it? Now the truth is, we can't really, we can't really tell for sure. There's different theories. Perhaps he was reflecting on something happening in Rome. Uh, perhaps he was reflecting on a possible threat. He was certainly speaking from his own experience, uh, and this conflict with this particular group is well documented in his letters elsewhere, and he had encountered this issue in several other contexts. So we can't pinpoint the reason, but we can consider what kind of connections the Philippians might have made from this section of the letter to their particular context. And there's at least one area in which they could relate. Though the othering language and acts of the Judaizers might not have been a particular problem in the city of Philippi, there was another mechanism of othering which was prevalent and highly consequential. 
In Philippi, to be a Roman citizen was to be a first-class person (laughs) and to not be like all the rest who did not share the same rights. The rest didn't share the same rights, they didn't share the same authority, and they were not entitled. One of the centerpiece markers of this Roman identity in Philippi was emperor worship, which Christians refused to take part in. It's noteworthy also that Jews were a recognized and one of the few recognized religious minorities in the Roman Empire. So a Jew could refuse participation in emperor worship without more serious consequences. A Gentile Christian, on the other hand, could not. And it might have been tempting, therefore, for a Christian to become a Jew so as to receive some sort of legal protection. All of this takes us back to that particular word that Paul uses, safeguard. Safeguard. A safeguard from what? From the Judaizers? Or from the Rome-centered Gentiles? And of course, the other side of the coin is also a question. A safeguard in what? What is this safeguard? Would they be safer in a Jewish identity or would they be safer in a Roman identity? So with these questions up in the air, Paul tells his story. And he isn't telling it to brag about his past. He isn't telling it to brag about his present either. He is telling it to say that his safeguard is Christ. He is telling it to say that his safeguard is Christ. His safeguard is Christ's joy and Christ's righteousness. And one of the most dangerous things that Christ's joy and righteousness safeguard him from is the misleading, rotting, and inherently excluding combination of self-righteousness and exclusion. Self-righteousness, in fact, necessarily leads to exclusion because it assumes that it is our righteousness that gives us our value. And therefore, it devalues those who do not conform to my righteousness. Paul's problem with the Torah is not following the laws, which which we have many reasons to believe that he continued to follow to a greater extent, to a great extent. The problem is self-righteousness, assuming that our following of the law, that our living up to a certain standard, entitles us to standing before God. The main danger that makes a self-based righteousness useless before God is that it is ultimately focused not on God, but on ourselves. Its deepest problem is relational. And as such, it stands in opposition to God's work of reconciliation in Christ. Paul is not arguing that everything is lost, garbage, rubbish in and of itself. 
He is saying that everything should be considered garbage when these things act as barriers to grace. Essentially, when they are at the service of the self. When they, on the other hand, emerge from the grace of Christ, then they are self-guarded from self-centeredness. They are safeguarded from self-centeredness and they are inherently communal and sacrificial. So it is Christ's righteousness that is our safeguard and never our own. Our own finds its, our own righteousness finds its nesting in Christ's body where it serves rather than promotes, where it embraces rather than excludes, where it sprouts from rather than argues for the embrace of God. For Paul, to know Christ was to find that God had provided means of righteousness for all out of his love for all Jew and Gentile alike. This is the great discovery in Paul's life. And anything that acted as a wedge was and is therefore rubbish, refuse, or if you want to be more honest in the translation, excrement. I guess Paul wouldn't be much of a success on Instagram. He isn't giving snippets of his life so that we can envy him or feel sorry for him. He's inviting us to reflect upon our own pride and our own shame. And he is inviting us to find joy not in Paul's accomplishment and story, but in Christ's embracing of Paul and of ourselves. It's tempting to look at Paul's story and read it like an Instagram story. If only we put some more effort into our Christian lives, we will be good enough and have a faith like Paul, a righteousness like Paul. We can have his spiritual six-pack and flaunt it around. Nothing could be further from Paul's desire with this letter from lockdown. He wants to tell us that we are are secure in Christ. Rejoice, you are safeguarded in Christ. That Christ's righteousness is enough for us to boast in Christ. And the way we boast in Christ is by serving and loving each other. It is by embracing and by showing compassion. It is by fighting religious and social systems that feed division and exclusion. It is by standing our ground of love, even when pressured into identities that would give us more public validation. That is how we press toward the goal, by pressing toward each other in the love of Christ. There is so much I want to do when we emerge from lockdown. But today, 
I want to be challenged to leave some room in my bucket list for the things that aren't about building my image and making me feel good about what I've done and what I've experienced. To leave room for the things that don't aim for some fictional joy in life, but that emerge from the joy of having found myself embraced by Christ. I want to emerge from lockdown with a thirst for showing compassion, for showing grace, a thirst for expressing love when I meet the other. I want to be so engaged with others that I don't have time to take pictures of it and curate it in my social media. What's on your bucket list? What's the first thing you want to do? When you step out from lockdown, whatever that looks like. What's the first things that we as a community wait for? Where's our identity and how do we express it? Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, for it is a safeguard to you. Rejoice in the Lord. So may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he safeguard you. May he make his face shine upon you and may you know that he is gracious to you. And so that you may know that he looks upon you. And that knowing that, you may find peace. And that we may go in that peace of Christ. And serve him and serve the other joyfully. Have a great week, everyone.